Imagine that for over a decade, you have fought to reach the pinnacle of your profession. Then you walk away. When you return six months later, nothing is the same. I've been screwed by Shawn Michaels. I've been screwed by Stone Cold Steve Austin. You scratch my back and I'll stab yours. There is no respect. Everybody in that dressing room knows that I'm the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Even your fans have changed. At the heart of this change is a man that spits in the face of your every accomplishment. Ever since you came back, you ain't done nothing but cry. He has attacked you physically and verbally. If you put the letter S in front of Hitman, you've had my exact opinion of Bret Hart. This man mocks your legacy. Bret Hart on his best day can't lace my boots. I will beat the hell out of Bret, and that's the bottom line. Injustice after injustice has forced you to snap. Frustrated isn't the word for it. Now the finger is pointed at you. You're the one who's changed. They say your ego is your enemy. There is only one solution. You must make Austin beg for mercy. But what if Stone Cold Steve Austin wins? What becomes of Brett Hitman Hart then? Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, the march to WrestleMania continues as we cover what I will contend, contend is one of the most fascinating WrestleManias of all time. It might not be a good show, but goddamn, it sure is interesting. It's WrestleMania 13. Heat! This, <laughs> this show is not good, like by any stretch yeah. of the imagination, aside from a 22-minute stretch that obviously yeah. we're going to have to talk about. Aside from maybe the greatest match in pro <laughs> wrestling history, other than that, you know. Yeah. But I mean, like, to come as far as we have, 11 and 12 are such hopeless, barren yeah. wastelands yeah. of, like, no hope can enter here. And now all of a sudden, it's like, oh, there's potential stars in every match. Yes. They're doing stupid shit, but they're there. Yeah. And one, shot, one star shines above them all on this night, and that is Stone Cold Steve Austin. At the oh, end yeah. of this night, he is the motherfucking man. And if you're watching television around this time, it's pretty oh. goddamn clear that it's Austin, 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 and nobody else. The six-month run he's had here, really since he started cutting promos on Brett, has just been unbelievable. He's been the best thing in wrestling. Every week he's been knocking his promos out of the park. Yeah, I, I'm sure we're going to talk about like how Austin gets here in the lead-up and all of that stuff. But like the most important thing to realize is Stone Cold Steve Austin during this, like I would say up until like 98 where he starts to get a little bit stale and it is probably the greatest character in professional wrestling history. Like nobody's ever tapped into like the essence of like wild chaos 
like Stone Cold Steve Austin did, and just like vicious, mean, but also just like fun to watch. And you love like he is just like some sort of demigod unleashed on Earth. Yeah, he's funny but not cheesy. He's likable, but he doesn't pander. He's just everything that perfect babyface tone they had not been able to hit for just years and years here. He's the perfect babyface for the 1990s. And the fascinating thing about Austin is that we've said a million times that like whenever they get somebody like Diesel or whenever they get somebody like Roman or whatever, that they keep ruining them by like altering what it is that they inherently are. And Austin is completely resistant to that. And I don't know if I know exactly why that is, because it's not like Vince McMahon's a wholly different person. He does the same stupid bullshit with every other top baby face he ever gets his hands on. But for some reason with Austin, the character doesn't have to change. And that's the magic of it, is that as he turns babyface and we're allowed to love him and he does all this cool stuff, he's still at heart the same vicious, maniacal bastard that he was as a heel. Yeah. Somehow he's the one guy they don't mess his character up when he gets over as a heel and turns face. And I don't know if that's just Vince realizing he's got a good thing and not wanting to touch it. Could be Vince Russo's influence. Or maybe it's just Austin himself actually having the balls to be like, no, fuck you. You don't change this. I'll do what I want. It just feels like, yeah, Steve Austin was so sick of the bullshit of wrestling that it was like he was either going to do things his way or he was going to go home. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's the perception that you get whenever you hear people talk about him during this era is that he would just tell Vince like, fuck, no, I'm not doing that. And Vince would listen because he's because we're at a crossroads here. We're like Roman Reigns can't do this because Vince doesn't need Roman at the end of the day. Vince doesn't need anybody now. But at this time, Vince desperately needs Stone Cold Steve Austin or somebody to lift him out of the doldrums. Yeah, Steve Austin is the first ray of hope this company has had since like 1990. Yeah, so like Steve Austin has stroke like you can't believe by being the guy who actually saves this company. So Steve Austin could probably just do whatever the fuck he wants. So to set the stage for how we got here. Um, WrestleMania 12 ended with Shawn Michaels achieving his boyhood dream, defeating Bret Hart in the 60-minute Iron Man match to win the World Wrestling Federation Championship. Uh, Bret took time off after WrestleMania 12. He was, you know, thinking of going into acting. He had that lonesome Dove TV show going that ended up getting canceled. His contract expired at some point in 1996. He negotiated with WCW, but ultimately decided to stay with the WWF, signed the now infamous 20-year contract where he was going to make like a million dollars a year for the first few years and then go down to a lower salary as he would retire from the ring and transition into a backstage role. So he does return uh, to the company in the fall of 1996 uh, Shawn Michaels is the world champion all throughout the time Brett is gone. They're trying with him, but it's just not really clicking. He doesn't really have the opponents he needs. They don't have a great sense of you know what his character should be. He's just not, it's not the right fit. Again, they're tr- kind of trying to pigeonhole him as a goody two-shoes baby face, which is not a character he's well-suited to play at right. that point. Or at any point, because that's just so completely contrary to who he is in the 90s. Yeah, 
Yeah, he's a shithead. He yeah. got over as a shithead, and he got over as a babyface, and then they changed him. It's kind of the story, the running story they had in this era. Absolutely. Um, all signs were pointing to a Brett Sean rematch at WrestleMania this year. Um, you know, the broad strokes of it is this time Brett will get his win back from Sean. He'll, t- you know, turn heel while doing it. And then him and Sean can have, you know, their final rubber match where Brett puts over Sean and, you know, shows respect for him and turns back babyface in the process. That falls apart on the way into this show, as we'll cover in a little bit. Oh boy, does it ever. So Brett returns in October. He has a feud with Steve Austin. Uh, He asked to work with Austin just because he thought he was the best thing going in the company. And he was right. He wanted to work with Austin to help get him over. And he ultimately succeeded in doing that. Although there were some twists and turns along the way. It must be said that like, I have buried Bret Hart maybe once or twice on the show throughout the course of our our run. But him choosing and wishing to put over Steve Austin here not only winds up basically saving the company, but it's it's a truly – I'm sure that there was stuff for him to get out of it too. Like I'm sure he just really wanted to work with somebody who could actually work, who had respect for him, unlike every other top guy in the company at that point. you know. And I'm sure that he just really wanted this. But like it's – it's an altruistic thing that he does that genuinely helps the company. At, we covered Survivor Series 1996 uh, back in November. A very enjoyable, yeah. historically important show. On that show, uh, Brett beat Austin in an absolute classic match. And Sid beat Shawn Michaels in the main event to win the WWF Championship. Um, as we had covered... That would have been Vader winning the title in the original plan, but Michaels didn't like working with Vader. Management lost faith in Vader, so they audibled to Sid instead. And by the time we get to this show, Vader is pretty much an afterthought. Like, of all the young guys that they have that are up and coming, and there are a lot of them, I can't help but wonder, like, if Vader had actually worked out, it would have helped them so much. If they could like be building to like an Austin Vader or a Shamrock Vader or a Rock versus Vader, like it, you don't often get handed a top heel like that just on a silver platter, and it just doesn't work in such a spectacular way. I can't even think of like a corollary to that. Like somebody, like a gigantic star, goes to another company and flops so hard that they become worthless within six months. It's. Look, if you don't want to put the title on him, Sean doesn't want to work with him. Okay, it feels like there's a middle ground between that and burying him like they end up doing. Yeah, like literally like somebody in the company, and and maybe it is just Sean manipulating things, or maybe it's just Vince losing confidence in him, which is what it probably is. But like, it's clear that people making decisions in this company within six months are like, no, this guy fucking sucks. Let's just run out the contract and get him out of here. Yeah, I... At a certain point, it becomes it really becomes apparent that they're trying just to get him to quit. Is their goal? They're just going to do whatever they can to make him hum- to humiliate him until he quits. Which is kind of madness. Do you think? And let me just pitch it. Like, let me just pitch a conspiracy theory here to you because I I love pitching conspiracy theories. Do you think that this being the first major free agent other than f- since Flair? that Vince gets from WCW 
it working out this poorly is one of the reasons why he refuses to put over WCW talent when they come over from then on. Man, Vince was never big. Once we got to the 90s, it seems like Vince was never big on bringing in guys from the other side. There's some exceptions to that. They did push Sid, but you know, yeah, there's Sid a long player like hesitance to push WCW guys when they come in. But like this is the first one since like Sid and Flair, who Vince pushed hard when he got him. Yeah. And like those didn't last very long, but they were successful while he had him. But this goes so poorly. And like from here on, nobody gets a push when they come in. Everyone but meanwhile, Steve Austin is becoming their top star. And they're, you know, they're pushing Mick Foley. Like they brought in Mick Foley, gave him a feud with The Undertaker. He's That's in true. the same match as Vader here, but they clearly have much better plans for Vader. I, there's lots of XWCW talent on this card. Gold Dust, Triple H. I mean, I'd say a majority of the guys they're pushing at this point are guys who came in from WCW. Yeah, but I wonder if it makes a difference to Vince if they're like mid-carters he gets, who he puts his own yeah, stamp it's on. It's like, oh, I actually know how to use this guy. Unlike yeah. Vader was the WCW champion, was you know pretty much their top star in the early 90s. And the Vader here is the Vader from WCW. Because yeah. once you're a huge star to a certain extent, you can't really change their character. Whereas like mid-carters like Austin and Triple H and them, he's given them WWE characters. You know yeah. what I mean? They're I mean, kids. Vince... Vince did want to call Vader the Mastodon so they could trademark it. The Mastodon. He's a big old Mastodon. There's like a seven-year period where Vince McMahon cannot successfully name anything. At the December In Your House pay-per-view, which was entitled It's Time for Vader, but by this point he was so far in the shitter he wasn't even on the card. Mm. Uh, uh, Sid... Uh, defended the title against Bret Hart successfully after Shawn Michaels accidentally hit Bret with a chair. Bret took the power bomb, and then the show ended with Bret and Shawn brawling. Once again, all signs are pointing to a Bret Shawn match at WrestleMania. Yep. Um, as far as historical oddities, Shotgun Saturday Night debuted on January 4th. 1997 from the Mirage, a New York City nightclub. I'm fascinated by Shotgun Saturday Night because this is one of the weirdest things they've ever done. How there are some decisions that Vince McMahon has made during the course of WWE history that I just I don't understand how in the context of the other decisions that he's ever made, he gets to this place. Like, how do you get to we're going to go to nightclubs? And shoot guerrilla wrestling yeah. in the nightclubs with weird cameras and like different announcers yeah. and weird talent. And they're gonna be like stage diving off the stages and stairs and shit. Like, and it's this... gonna be on like in the middle of the night on yes. syndicated TV. And like, we're gonna like show tits and curse and like do all other kinds of crazy things. And may maybe okay. if Vince, it was just like, uh, Clearly, Vince understands that they need to change. Yes. They're very slowly getting there. Yeah. It's clearly the idea has formulated in his head that, okay, we got to do something different. Maybe we got to be more adult. Like, we got to grow out of this G-rated era that we've been in. Okay. But, like, to have it be like, but our TV is going to be the same as it has been, and we're just going to have half an hour on at midnight <laughs> – when we're just showing tits and Terry Funk is calling people's mom the whore. 
<laughs> the Terry Funk promo is just one of my favorite things that ever happened. And just the idea that he was specifically told beforehand not to curse, yeah. and he still goes, your mother's a whore. <laughs> Jim Ross, you okie asshole. <laughs> yeah. So they try this for a little while with the weird venues, the nightclubs, the strip clubs. I think they did one from like Penn Station in New York City, or maybe it was Grand Central Station, but New York Subway Station. Um and then they just kind of give up on it because it's a waste of money. Nobody's watching it. And it just becomes something they tape before Raw. It just becomes another B show. But for this, like, three months it lasted, it was fascinating. Yep. Uh, the Royal Rumble goes down in San Antonio. We are going to have to cover this at some point. This is one of the most fascinating shows in WWF history. Um, they managed to jam 60,000 people into the Alamo Dome to see Shawn Michaels win back the WWF title from Sid. You know, great crowning babyface moment for Shawn there. Um, and then the Royal Rumble, they pulled a swerve and had Steve Austin win. Bret Hart was going to win, but then Vince Russo got on Livewire, um, shot his mouth off. They did a panel segment asking for Royal Rumble predictions, and Russo said something like, Guys, it's obvious Bret Hart's winning the Royal Rumble. And then when they asked him for who his second choice was, he wouldn't give one because he said it's obviously going to be Bret Hart. And Vince <clears throat> felt like he was giving away the finish to the Royal Rumble in the way he was talking about it. Now so they decided to swerve it. I love this story because it just illustrates like a level of like just stubborn stupidity on Vince Russo's part. Like, yes, it is obvious that Bret Hart is going to win the Royal Rumble, but it's your job to lie. Yeah. Like, why the fuck why the fuck were they putting Vince Russo on TV anyway? That's a great point. Why? He's not even is he even a full-time member of the writing team yet? He's doing the magazine and he's sitting in on the creative meetings at this point. I can't even imagine who else is on Livewire at that point, honestly. Cornette, which is amazing to watch in retrospect. Uh it's like Cornette Russo and Sonny and sometimes JR. Now, for the record, uh, at this point in time, I'm not catching every Raw, but I'm watching like all of like the Saturday, yeah. like Superstars, Livewire, whatever yeah. else. So this is the shit that I'm watching just to keep up on what's going on. So, I yeah. watch every single one of these Livewire clips from this era I can find online because it was some really weird stuff they were doing here. It's just you can tell when a show is being produced without Vince paying attention yes. to it. Because it just feels so much freer and weirder. Well, they also do stuff like they have Russo interview Vince and like kind of shit on the product and like be like, when are we going to get to see some new guys on top? You know, why is it always the same guys? They talk about what's going on in WCW. Like they're taking real live calls where people are like, what do you think of Roddy Piper coming in to fight Hogan in WCW? Like it's just crazy. That's just so contrary to like every yes. other thing that they've ever done in relation to any any other promotion ever. During Desperation any other is the mother of invention. I guess. 
And like that's also going to lead to those those cornet clips, which I don't remember exactly where in all of this timeline those go, where he just starts coming on the show and just like yes. about WCW for like that's in the fall, that's like around hell the Hell in a Cell match, but yeah, in the same vein, yeah, they're putting Vince Russo on or, or Jim Cornette on Raw to do shoot interviews about how much WCW sucks. Like it's like what is happening right now? Yeah. Um. It's a very strange. I love this year. I love 1997. Like I will take 1997 over like the rest of the Attitude Era. Not because it's better, but just because it's more interesting. Because this company has no idea what it's doing. They're just flailing and coming up with. Sometimes they're striking gold, and a lot of times they're striking out. Yeah, the true success of the Attitude Era is when Vince does hit on something that does work he is capable enough to actually do something with it. And so they're throwing literally like thousands of ideas at the wall just to see if they stick. And like the 10 that do, they run with them and they all turn into money. It's just, man, they're just throwing everything just to be like, do you like this? Do you like this? Do you like this? Yeah, this is just like the one year in WWF history where guys just like show up on Raw and are on Raw for like a week and then they're gone just because they're being so experimental at this point. Yeah, just giving anything a try. Who cares? Let's just see if it works. Fuck. Yeah, they're doing Raws from other countries where they're just like, like they have multiple Raws this year where it's like partially from another country and then they've got part of the roster in the U.S. for like a small venue show. Just stuff they don't do any other time. This also feels like the time in WWE history where the talent has the most power over what they do. Like there's so many points where like, let, let's just talk about China who gets brought in basically just because like Hunter and Sean just meet her at a bar and are just like, Hey, she's cool. Let's yeah. put her on TV with us. And they do. And they just do it. And they push her immediately. <laughs> yeah. And she gets over. She's already just, a star on this show. Yeah. It's just one of those things where it feels like guys are just improving their asses off and Vince is running with it. So Austin won the Royal Rumble. Brett threw him out, but the referees didn't see it. He got back in the ring and he eliminated um, Brett and Vader and Undertaker to win. Because he cheated to win, uh, Gorilla Monsoon ordered basically a redo match uh, for the February In Your House. In Your House, final four, it would be a four corners match between Brett, Austin, Vader, and Undertaker. Uh, the winner would face Michaels for the WWF title at WrestleMania. Um, they had always been promoting this as Final Four, so I think this was always going to be a controversial finish at the Rumble. I just think Brett was going to be the one who won controversially, right. and then he would have to like defend his title shot at the pay-per-view, and it would just give Brett more fodder to complain about being screwed. Though, honestly, it makes more sense for it to be Austin because Austin kind of needs this rub to be like yeah. in that match with those other guys. And so he gets over. Austin's basically a mid-carder up until like Survivor Series. And even then, he's not really a main event year yet. So by the time you get to February, he's actually a main eventer. It happens really fast. Yeah. Now, winning the Rumble is a huge was a huge deal for him. And that's one thing I'm just going to hit on throughout this is how much of this happens by accident with Austin. Yes. There's 15 weird things that happen on the way into this show that result in him getting this match with Brett and it going down the way that it does and him becoming a star coming out of it. 
and let's be clear, like I don't want to like sit, get crazy or anything, but if this show does not work out pretty much exactly the way that it does, I'm not sure Austin becomes Austin. So I, I'm sure that to some degree he's a big star, but I don't know that he can become the star he became without this show going exactly the way that it did. <laughs> If he wrestles, yeah, if he wrestles the British Bulldog on this show like he was going to, does Vince see it in Austin? Do they go with him the way they end up? I I don't know. Do the fans turn him and yeah. decide that he's the one if he's not up against a whiny Bret Hart who they're also ready to turn? Like I don't think yeah, so. They're still pushing him as a heel on the way into this show. It yeah, because I think Davy Boy was turning face. And there's there's absolutely no way that like British Bulldog versus Steve Austin would result in anything but a boring ass ten minute match. Yeah, and if like this is main evented by Brett versus Sean, Sean's still gonna be definitively the top baby face of this company. Instead, at the end of the show, they're looking for a new top baby face that Austin slides into. So somewhere around this point, Vince starts getting panicky, and he decides. He actually wants to be, he wants the main event to be Taker versus Sid for the title at WrestleMania. Based on the preponderance of the evidence I have read, I believe this occurred before Sean had a knee, before Sean's knee injury, before Sean losing his smile. According to Brett's book and the reporting from the Wrestling Observer, um, the plan was for Brett to wrestle Sean at WrestleMania in the main event, or at least the top promoted match in a hair versus hair ladder match is what Vince pitched to Brett. Now, Steve, what the fuck is a hair versus hair ladder match? I mean, what's hanging from the top? Is it clippers beefcake? Brutus Beefcake. Brutus yes. <laughs> Beefcake in a cage. You have to let Brutus Beefcake out of the cage, and then he comes down and shaves your opponent's head. I mean, that's that's madness, right? Yeah. Like, are you hanging scissors up there? Like, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what a weird idea. So, and Sean is going to get his head shaved? Really? See, that, that's the wild thing. It's like, Vince would not have cut Sean's happened. golden locks. That's not going to happen. But what, Brett gets his hair shaved? No, because Brett's going to win is the thing. This is deeply confusing. Like, I don't know. It's one of those things where, like, I'm sure that idea was, like, thrown out there by someone. But I cannot believe that the main event of WrestleMania was ever going to be a hair versus hair ladder match. I don't think Vince even really knew what hair versus hair matches were. Vince hated, that's the thing. It seems like Vince hated the idea of hair versus hair matches. But like Cornette and Pritchard and JR and all the other Southern boys would always pitch him hair matches and Vince didn't get it. They, they didn't do hair matches in New York. It just wasn't a thing. And that's the thing is that when you listen to something to wrestle with and these, some of these older Southern guys and stuff talk and they're always just like, well, Vince doesn't get this. That The thing is what Vince doesn't get is also often what his audience doesn't get because the WWE audience also has not seen a hair match and there's like been like one in 30 years. Yeah. Like it's, it's just not, not a common. thing. Yeah. And like, I don't know that that's necessarily something that they would have wanted. It's like, especially if Sean's the baby face and he gets his head shaved. Like, I don't know. You're kind of killing that character. Yep. Um, on February 3rd, raw expanded to two hours. 
Uh, they did not have two hours of good content at this point, but I think they God, just no. felt the need to catch a, keep up with Nitro and they could generate some more revenue with an extra hour of ad sales. These Raws in 1997 oh. are rough. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like the one hour Raws were pretty solid because it was just like, okay, we got our Brett segment, our Undertaker segment, our Austin segment just cruising right through a nice lean hour. Yeah. When they try to pack two hours of stuff, they don't have it. Oh, you're just getting all sorts of like long head bangers matches. And uh, the mid card of this company is such absolute trash. It's irrid. I would argue that like raw didn't become like a really good show from start to finish until like late 99. Like it takes a long time for this company to be solid from top to bottom. <laughs> So, our plan, Undertaker versus Sid for the title, Brett versus Sean, Austin versus Bulldog, I guess. Who cares about the rest of the- Yeah, but <laughs> there's a problem. Shit. Sean's got a knee injury, or so he claims. <laughs> Says his doctor told him his knee was destroyed, his career might be over. He has to drop the title. He can't do it in the ring to Sid like they want him to. He may have always been supposed to drop the title to Sid here, but especially after he had the injury, they were like, okay, can you do a quick match with Sid? You know, he'll goad you into the match. We'll make it clear you're hurt and you shouldn't be wrestling and Sid will beat you quick. That didn't work for Sean, brother. So he's just going to give the title up. This is one of the all-time weirdest moments in wrestling history because surreal. He tells everyone that he has a knee injury. Yeah. And then they're like, fine, just go Great, on crawl, cool, whatever. Surrender the belt, whatever. And then he delivers the promo. This promo and- is so weird and like it's off. It's just not right. It's not what they were looking for. Like, it really seems like in the promo. He's explaining to the crowd, I'm not actually injured. No. I just really don't want to be here. Yeah. Well, he's, you know, he was depressed. And like, we don't talk much about mental health and wrestling, but like, he was depressed. He was overcome with anxiety trying to be the champion. He just needed some time off. Now, ideally, he could have kept going to WrestleMania and then taken some time off after WrestleMania, but. Didn't really want to do the jobs he was going to have to do on the way to get there. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing is that we, he's been buried for 30 years because of this promo and because of this situation. However, he is not the first champion to ever buckle under the pressure of being the top guy. Eddie Guerrero. Yeah. Eddie Guerrero famously, it's, it's pretty much what killed him. Like among many other things, obviously, but like, it's so much pressure, especially during this time where the company's literally going to die if you don't draw money. Yeah, the company is hanging on a thread here, and every single house is life and death, especially WrestleMania. Like, WrestleMania is everybody's payday here. Yeah. And meanwhile, like, the top of the company at this point is so deeply political. Like, uh, probably the worst that it ever was in terms yeah. of just like, people coming for you they want your spot they want the belt they want everything and they're like it's got to be an incredible amount of pressure don't get me wrong i it was very deeply stupid of sean to do this in this way but i i'm sympathetic to the idea of a guy with a serious drug habit 
dealing with depression and anxiety under these circumstances. I don't think that the narrative that we've always placed on it is fair to him. I really don't. Yeah, I tend to agree. That um, said, it was fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, it's just, again, so he comes out, you know, he's doing this interview. He's all sad. He's talking about how he's got this knee injury. The crowd, like, shits on him. The crowd is chanting for Sid. By yes. two minutes into the promo, the crowd is chanting for Sid. And then, as it seems like the promo should be wrapping up, he veers left. And he's like, well, I was talking to my mom the other day, and she said, um, you know, you don't smile anymore. And I, I've lost a lot of things while I've been champion. and." One of those things I lost uh, was my smile. So I'm going to have to go away and go see if I can find that again. What? Yeah. I huh? mean, I mean, all you had to do was come out and be like, guys, my knee shredded yeah. up. I love you all so much. I'll be back as soon as I can, but I just can't defend this belt. Yeah. Batista got this art down to a science because he did this promo like <laughs> eight times. 15 times. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. How many times did he have to do this over the years? But like he keeps going and go, it's like a ten-minute promo. Yeah, and you got to imagine Vince is in the back, like, what the fuck is this? Because he like barely even mentions his knee. It's all about a smile. I don't. Oh, oh boy, oh boy. He was he must have been in a bad way at this point to have actually said these words out loud and thought that people would be sympathetic to him. Oh, so. Instead of the plan. Also, I should mention this all happened on a Thursday episode of Raw entitled Thursday Raw Thursday. I love Thursday Raw Thursday. What the fuck? It's from <laughs> Lowell, Massachusetts on February 13th. Um, I assume it was preempted for the Westminster Dog Show. That sounds right. Hey, the dog show was over. The dog show was drawing better ratings than Raw was at this point. Oh, no, quite. I rem did When did you start watching Raw as a kid? Uh, 98. So were they still doing the dog, like, preempting yep. for the dog show? Yeah, both the, they would preempt for the dog show in February and then for uh, the U.S. Open in September. Yes. I My whole childhood, I vividly remember the horror of waiting all yes. week for Raw, <laughs> turning it on as the fucking dog show again. Yeah, at least this is when they start to get it where they'll put them on a different night of the week. So it'll right. be a Thursday or then, you know, we covered the St. Valentine's Day Mask or Go Home show was on a Saturday night. You know, they would at least get something. But yeah, for a couple of years there, they would just be off for like two weeks on the way into WrestleMania, which is really bad timing. And the thing was, is that this is back in the days before the internet or anything like that. So if you're a kid yeah. trying to tune in to watch Raw and the dog shows on, you don't get any information. Like, there's not like a bar across the bottom of the screen like WWE Raw has been preempted and will be seen next week or will be seen on Thursday. Like, I sat through multiple entire dog shows just waiting to see if Raw would be on afterwards. And then it'd be like silk stockings or whatever bullshit USA put on after Raw usually. Like, it was seriously the worst so i should mention sean's supposedly career-ending knee injury ended up not even requiring surgery he was back in six weeks yeah it's pretty clear that it had nothing to do with the knee he just needed a break 100 percent could have worked through this knee injury if he was going over brett at wrestlemania he would have worked through it oh god yeah yeah. Like, frankly, <laughs> walk through, through hell to go over Bret Hart in 1997. 
I mean, let's be clear. Like this is the cru- this is like the reason why that famous urban legend of Undertaker taping his fist at yeah. the curtain at WrestleMania 14 is the case because he bailed on everybody here. Shawn Michaels never jobbed titles. Like we went over this in one of our other episodes. We went over his history of somehow never losing his titles in the ring. And frankly, that's that'll wind up making it even bigger that he actually does put yeah. Steve over because that's the only one person who ever gets over on Shawn Michaels. I think it was just he was not going to let it be his legacy that he was the guy who pulled out of WrestleMania two years in a row because right. he didn't want to do jobs, which would have a hundred percent been what he was remembered for at that point. Yeah, doing the job clean for Austin put him on the right side of history. And yeah. That probably saved. Because then when he came back in 02, he didn't have any of the baggage of what a shithead Shawn Michaels is. Yeah, absolutely. So they audible. They put the WWF title on the line in the final four match at the February pay-per-view. So Thursday, Raw Thursday happened on Thursday, of course. The pay-per-view was (laughs) Sunday. I I love that I just felt the need to clarify (laughs) that. But it was the Thursday before the pay-per-view. The pay-per-view was like three days later. I'm so happy you just said those words. Um. So that match, it was a four corners match. You could be eliminated by pinfall, submission, or being thrown over the top rope. If you've never seen this, you need to. It's a fucking banger. A 30-minute war between these four guys. Vader bleeds like a stuck pig after he gashes his eye on the steps. Uh, Austin blows out his knee, slipping on the apron, all kinds of crazy shit happens in this match after 30 minutes brett emerges as champion austin got thrown out of the match first came back in to interfere tried to screw brett instead ended up distracting undertaker and helping brett win the title man this is a wild amazing match like i don't know yeah. if we're ever going to get a chance to like cover it at some point i hope we do because like this is also like a really shit show other than this <laughs> other one than match. That, yeah sounds sounds familiar doesn't it yeah but like this is awesome and like these four guys are just tearing the house down yeah so they announced sid was supposed to get his title shot on that thursday raw they announced that instead he would face the winner of the final four match the next night on raw um as raw comes on the air that night Um, They announced that Undertaker is the number one contender for WrestleMania. He will wrestle Bret Hart or Sid, whoever emerges from their match that night as the world champion. Nice. So Bret and Sid face off that night, February 17th from Nashville. They did a cool ratings tease here where um, they announced Bret and Sid were going to open the show and they come out to do their match, but Austin interferes and attacks Brett, and then he clips Sid's knee, and Sid is hurt, and they say, okay, we can't do the match right now. And then they say, okay, we're going to do the match at the top of the hour at 10 o'clock. And then, once again, they you know come out to do the match, but Austin attacks Brett again, and they can't do the match again. So they say, okay, we're going to do the match in the main event. And they do finally manage to get the match in the ring. They have the match. Um, Brett gets Sid in the sharpshooter. Austin shows up, hits Brett in the head with a chair. Sid nails Brett with the powerbomb, pins him to win the WWF title. And shockingly, Bret Hart's title reign lasts only 24 hours. 
the best thing about this show and would would go on to become the best thing about raw in general is just the idea that steve austin is a plague that you can't get rid of yeah there's nothing that's going to stop him from coming for you if he wants to come for you again and again and again he comes down and just beats everyone's ass yeah, like he <laughs> interfered three times in one show. I think they kicked him out of the building at one point and he still got back in. Like Steve Austin is a hunter stalking his prey and he will not give up. He's closer to Michael Myers than any wrestler who's ever worn a mask ever. <sighs> so that appears to set up Sid versus Undertaker for the WWF title and Austin versus Brett. Um, around this time, they reach a deal with Ken Shamrock to bring him in. They're trying to figure out what do we do with Shamrock? They decide let's have him referee the Austin Brett match. And so, because Shamrock is a UFC guy, submission guy, let's make Brett versus Austin a submission match. Um, Austin found out watching raw that it was going to be a submission <laughs> match. No one had told him he was at home watching raw. And I assume like it was a pre-taped raw and they inserted a segment in there announcing it. And he was pretty pissed off because he's got no submit. Well, he always says like, I didn't have any submission ults. His finisher had been the million dollar dream before it was the stunner. I mean, it wasn't that crazy that he would use a submission hold, but he was not happy with the idea of it being a submission match. But again, what a random dumb thing that ends up working out so well for them. Oh yeah. Like I would have absolutely been pissed too. It was like, this is a guy who literally at this point has built his entire style around punching you a yeah. thousand times and then hitting the stunner. And he's in a, basically a, to be in a, now the way that they present it was actually very smart yeah. and they try to sell it as more of like an I quit match once you actually get to the show. So like Vince is just like, he could just punch him in the face until Brett says, please stop. It's yeah. like, okay, that makes sense. That works. Yeah. Yeah. Or he could, or they foreshadow like, what if he just knocks him out? Well, that'll be a submission. Yeah. Um, there's really no build or heat to Undertaker versus Sid. Like, there's one episode of Raw where they have them team up, and Sid turns on Taker and hits him with the power bomb, and like that's it. That's there's no heat or build for that. Ah. Uh. Yeah. Part of the reason this show didn't draw for shit. I mean, in fairness, like the entire main event has all been feuding with each other for the past three months. So like it, it would be hard to pull any one match out of that. Raw on February 24th at the Manhattan Center featured the ECW invasion, which is kind of a footnote because they ended up doing so little with it. That's always been a little perplexing to me that they didn't take that further than they did. It's one of those things that they've always sort of patted themselves on the back for and put on all the highlight reels and stuff like that. It genuinely doesn't go anywhere. Like, it no. doesn't build to, like, a big ECW versus WWE match or anything. No. Do you think it was ever meant to? I I don't know what it was meant to do. It was meant to... I, there's always been this weird thing that, like, Vince felt indebted to Paul Heyman, which Vince stole everybody's talent, but... For some reason, he felt the need to help Heyman out and if, no one else. If we found out that, that Paul Heyman had blackmail on Vince McMahon yeah. going back to here, it would totally make sense, wouldn't it? Because it, it would really help explain a lot of things. Because Vince doesn't seem to like Paul Heyman, but he's no. given him thousands of opportunities. 
No. And he had him on the company payroll at this point. He was subsidizing ECW, giving them, doing talent trade with them, sending guys to work for them. It is very weird. Yeah. Yeah. But like, it it genuinely seems like the invasion was just meant to help ECW because all it does is get their guys' exposure on Raw. Yeah. And they kick the shit out of all the WWF guys they go against who are jobbers, but still. But then the weird thing is, it's like this happens, but they don't get any WWE guys on ECW shows except for Lawler. They get some shit. Well, they send them like Brackus and like guys yeah, who they but... want to get sick. Not stars, no. Like, yeah, Lawler is it. But yeah, they don't send them like actual stars. They send them guys they want to develop. Furnace and LaFon, guys like that. How nuts would it have been if like Austin goes down there for a show? Oh, after he's hot. Austin. Yeah. He would have gotten a God's welcome. Yep, absolutely. Um, I wonder, maybe this was all just supposed to end in them stealing Rob Van Dam, but he just didn't want to leave ECW. Gosh, if he Van Dam comes over in like 97. The new Shawn Michaels. Jesus, because oh, he's man. the centerpiece of this. Like he's the guy they're really pushing, and he's doing the Mister Monday Night thing, which is a great character. Yeah, I mean, it really seems like the only people that Vince knows and wants on his show is like, yeah, you can put Taz, Sebu, and Van Dam on here. Everyone else can just fuck off. The March third episode of Raw is a very important one in WWF history. The reason is that it sucked. Um, it was. Mostly a house show from Germany that they had taped and they were presenting with live commentary over it, trying to pretend it was live. It is this like dimly, dankly lit house show from Germany with a bunch of cold matches. They can't do promos in front of the crowd because the crowd doesn't speak English. This show has great matches on it, including a classic British Bulldog versus Owen Hart match in the finals of the European title tournament. But presentation is as important as anything else in wrestling, and nobody wants to watch something that looks like shit. So people tuned out this show and tuned over to Nitro in droves this night. This drew, like, the worst rating in Raw history. I mean, if you haven't seen this before, it can't be overstated. This met, this show looks like garbage. It, it literally looks like a fan taped it from the crowd, and it's just... It's trash. Like if you were just like channel surfing through and you saw this, you'd be like, ew, gross. And you would just keep going. It doesn't even look like wrestling half the time. It's yeah. it's very, very bad. So for Jim Cornette tell this story many times of like getting to the office the next day and immediately being told like, hey, there's a meeting up in Vince's office. Like you need to get up there. And he gets there and Vince is just furious. And he's like, that was the worst Raw ever. Like we need to change shit up. And he's like, Russo, you're in charge. Like not actually, but this is when Vince Russo really assumes a position of power on the creative team. Now the fascinating thing about Russo's rise to power is just that basically he got it through persistence. Yeah. Like well, he, he got was, his job through persistence. He just kept calling the office and writing letters to Linda McMahon until they hired him. And then he rises up to be the editor of the magazine, which yeah. nobody gives a shit about because which they is, don't 
which is what allows him to like make up his own storylines for the magazine and like turn the magazine into a really cutting edge and interesting thing that's like giving fans the inside story. Yeah. And so like, I don't know at what point Vince kind of catches wind of this or if Russo's this whole time just like pitching him storylines or like just like sending him over like letters with like his stuff in it. But whatever the case may maybe I, I just love the idea that Vince is like walking through like the lobby on the way to his office and like picks up the raw magazine and reads it for the first time in six years. And he's like, what the fuck is this? That's a good idea. Well, yeah. So the story I've heard is he literally like slapped the magazine down on the table and was like, this is what our show needs to be. Like, that's pretty amazing. Wow. So Vince Russo gets called up from not even the minor leagues, from like out fuck, out of the stands. Yeah, in the order fucking to be the magazine? It's like if somebody writing for the website today was put in charge of the creative team. It's about to say, hey, that was a pretty good article you wrote on the network. Like, <laughs> go ahead and uh, you're the head writer now. Yeah. Again, desperation. So lots of things change here. Um, the March 10th episode, one week later, is the debut of Raw is War. This is where we get the classic Raw set with the black curtain, the big black Titantron, the ramp. Uh, we get a new theme song, The Beautiful People by Marilyn Manson, which is an awesome intro song for a wrestling show. So awesome. They use it again later. Yep, they used it again for SmackDown in 2002. It only lasted a few weeks here. Um, I don't remember. Do they edit this out on the network? They probably do. I think they do. Yeah, they don't, they don't pay. I think that was always the issue. It was just like they didn't want to pay the music right fees. But I like the tone it set using it for a few weeks before they switched over to something more generic. It's also such a weirdly relevant song for them to use. Like, it's yeah. so much more like... Oh shit, Marilyn Manson's actually a relevant artist. Yeah, Marilyn Manson was hot back then. Yeah. And, and, he, like, was, and he was counterculture. He was controversial. And more importantly, he was hot with an audience that they hadn't been going after before. Yeah. Like he's hot with like teenage boys, which suddenly they seem to realize, like, oh hey, we can cater to this group. Yeah. They're writing their show for 18-year-olds instead of eight-year-olds now. Yeah, and that's the success of the Attitude Era, is that 30-somethings and 8-year-olds were already watching, and they kept watching, and then you just got this whole other group in. Yeah. Uh, we also get the new intro, where Steve Austin walks through the exploding warehouse, which was put over before. It's like, again, the best introduction you can have to a wrestling show. This is still the coolest introduction to any wrestling yeah. show ever. Like, there's never going to be... Just like Steve Austin comes like lurching in off camera into the warehouse, explosions going off behind him. This is the coolest thing any wrestler's ever gotten to do. Like, this is some shit right here. Yeah. Well, every other intro to a wrestling show is just clips of guys doing stuff. Like, this is something very different. This catches yeah. your attention. Ironically, probably the second best intro to a wrestling show is Nitro. Like during yeah. this period, we're just, just like them broadcasting people in the buildings and then the man fire running explodes. down the street and boom, the big explosion. Yeah. Yep. Well, and then they take on basically the format of Nitro with more in-ring promos, more talking, like matches kind of being made on the fly, more angles, just up in the faster paced show, like fewer job matches, just up in everything. Everything is bigger now. 
And it's thank God. <laughs> yeah. Man, Raw had really sucked for the couple of years before this. It's some unwatchable garbage. And don't get me wrong, this doesn't magically cure Raw. Like Raw still kind of sucks, but it's just the trappings of Raw get so much better. And like right around this time is when like Ross and King are allowed to be on their own. And like the music is better. And just like everything around Raw becomes appealing for the first time. Yeah. Uh, this is also, don't they start doing the gimmick here where they have different announcers for the two hours? Yes. Which, what? again, is something they borrowed from Nitro. And th- it's a cool I idea. I see you, Bischoff. I'm giving you credit. It's true. There is, look, there's, Raw was built on the back of Nitro. Yep. Like, and they don't want to acknowledge that, and they never will acknowledge they will that, never but it's true. Admit that. But in their deepest, darkest, most private moments, they know it's true. The Raw that you watch today in 2018 is inv- was invented. The format was invented by Eric Bischoff, not Vince McMahon. And Eric Bischoff might be a smug, irritating bastard, but he's right to be smug about that. He tapped into exactly what a TV show was supposed to look like with wrestling, and that this is what it is. And that's what every wrestling show has looked like ever since. On the go-home Raw to WrestleMania, Sid defended against Bret Hart in a steel cage match. It was stated before the match that no matter what happened in this match, the matches for WrestleMania would not change. So if Brett won the title, he would defend it against Austin at WrestleMania, which I love the stakes this adds to this match. This is one of the greatest main events in Raw history. Would you this agree with that? This whole like, 30-minute deal from start to finish is phenomenal. And like this is probably the first truly great segment of like this era. Like, this, like, sets the tone. This is fucking phenomenal from start to finish. This, like, if you're going to say when did the Attitude Era start, you might just start with this segment. Yes. And, like, the stakes that are sky high for people who aren't even in the match. Yeah. So, Brett and Sid are having their match. Undertaker interferes. First, Austin interferes. But instead of trying to stop Brett from winning, he's trying to help Brett. Because he wants Brett to win the title so he can get the title shot at WrestleMania. Which is just such a great How idea. How brilliant is that? It's to make your greatest rival like help you <laughs> so that you guys can fight for the title later. Has this ever happened again since? I don't think so. And like, what a mistake that is because this is amazing. I love it. And so that provokes Undertaker to show up and interfere and try to help Sid because he wants to preserve his shot at the title. And so there's these great periods where like Austin and Taker are just like circling the ring like sharks and like swinging chairs at whoever tries to get out. Yeah, so it looks like Brett has the match won as he's about to walk out the door and Taker shows up and slams the door shut on his head. And that allows Sid to escape. Sid retains the title and the status quo is maintained. Sid versus Undertaker for the title at WrestleMania. But the real show is after the match. Yes. Vince gets in the ring to express his sympathy to Brett, says, you know, I understand you must be frustrated. Brett grabs Vince, shoves him on his ass, goes, frustrated isn't the goddamn word for it. This is bullshit. Which I'm pretty sure is the first curse word we've ever heard on Raw. Like, Austin would swear a little bit, but it was still pretty tame. This is really crossing the the threshold. 
and for Brett to do it. Brett, yeah. who like the the hero to children worldwide. Bret Hart for a decade has stood for tradition and honor and integrity in professional wrestling, but he's just been pushed past his limit here. And the best part about this, and like we always talk, everyone always talks about Austin when it comes to this part, and they should, he's brilliant, but it's the Bret storyline that really sets the, the, the table for everyone else. And like it's Bret embracing that edgy side. It's Bret, Brett's character, which is genius, because you absolutely see why he would be so frustrated. It's not his fault this stuff keeps happening. And yet he still keeps getting screwed every single time. It's not his fault. But he's fault. just so whiny about it. Exactly. So you All can he see does his, is complain. You can see his point, but he's just such a fucking crybaby about yeah. it. And Austin calls Austin just like, since you came back, you ain't done nothing but cry, Brett. And he's right. Yeah. And Steve Austin never cries. That's the thing. No. Steve Austin just keeps coming. And like Brett feels entitled to more respect than he's getting. While meanwhile, he's being surrounded by all these disrespectful assholes. And yeah. so that's what really splits it into Canada versus the United States. Because Canada's just like, we support you, Brett. We don't care how much you cry. Whereas all the U.S. fans are like, fuck this guy. What a whiny jerk. Um, so Brett says, you know, I got screwed. You screwed me. Everybody screwed me. There's so much goddamn injustice going on here. Austin comes up on the Titantron, taunts Brett, says, you know, you're such a loser. Even though I tried to help you win, you still couldn't do it. You couldn't get it done. Brett says they call you stone cold because your stones are so cold you won't come out here and fight me. Um, at this point, Austin comes down the aisle to fight Brett. Eventually, Sid shows up too. Undertaker comes out. Everybody is fighting everybody. Referees try to break up the fight. Brett punches Pat Patterson, which causes Vince to call him a son of a bitch on commentary. Yeah. And like here's here's the deal is that Vince McMahon never got personal on commentary. It's always just Oh, a show. what a maneuver. Yeah, it's 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 such like a clear like car salesman, like, oh, I'm just the presenter of this wacky television program. We borrow from elements of comedy, soap opera, action adventure. This is the very first and only time that Vince McMahon, the human being, comes out. And like it's so impactful, and it just feels like the whole show is breaking apart. Yeah. People they're like fighting all over the fucking place. It's chaos. Like it's there's never been anything like this on a TV show for wrestling before that I've ever seen. Before that, this is it's so great. Uh, he Vince goes. This is not the legacy of Bret Hart. We will remember not this cursing, this brawling, this whining. Uh, just this. The other thing is. This is like, I feel like the first time they did an overrun, this show must have gone like 15 minutes past 11. Like this went way over time. And they must have told USA in advance yeah. they were going to do that. Otherwise, it would have just been like, as Vince, as Brett's shoving Vince, it cuts off into La Femme Nikita or whatever. Yeah. I think this is where they had the crawl on the bottom of the screen being like, La Femme Nikita will begin when Raw concludes. Which nobody gives shit. La Femme Nikita was over. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, so in the middle of this, as everyone is fighting everyone and everything has gone to hell, Shawn Michaels shows up and walks down. He doesn't really do anything. He just kind of walks to the ring and like grabs a chair, but like just another combustible element thrown into this situation. Yes. And like, this is the only time that I can ever really remember where every single person in the entire main event scene is feuding with everyone else in the entire main event scene at the same time. They're all dicks. Yes, they all have a reason to hate one another that you intimately understand, and they do. So Vince has been trying to sell Brett on a heel turn. Brett's not so sure. Vince drew up a list for him of who he could feud with as a face compared to who he could feud with as a heel. As a face, it was Vader, Sid, and Bulldog. As a heel, it was Austin, Sean, and Undertaker. And I think that's what sold Brett on turning heel, who he was going to be able to work with. I mean, if you had to choose who you'd want to work with, I think it's pretty simple, Oh, fuck me. I could have been working with Brett. (laughs) Sorry, Davey boy. Fuck me. I almost got to wrestle Austin. Oh, God. I would have just buried him if he had been in that spot. I would have buried them both. So also going on here, we've got the rise of Rocky Maivia. He debuted back at Survivor Series. Um, he shockingly won the Intercontinental Championship on Thursday, Raw Thursday. I don't think we need to dwell on this. Rocky Maivia sucked. Everybody knows the story. No, yeah, he was trash, and it was a horrible idea. No, he looks like a star. It's just not... Yeah, cut his fucking hair. And if he had come like three years earlier, though, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But but this isn't the time for this. Uh, the Legion of Doom returned from a near five-year WWF absence and uh, joined up with Ahmed Johnson in his feud against the Nation of Domination. They wanted to get the Road Warriors for Chicago, and they were mega over on this night. Oh, yeah. Great call bringing them in here. Yeah. And like them with Ahmed, it looks cool. Like they look like badasses together. Um, there was an effort to sign Dennis Rodman for an appearance on this show. I think the thought was he would manage Gold Dust to set up him teaming with Gold Dust later on. He instead went to WCW, joined the NWO, and went on to headline a couple of the biggest pay per views ever. Right call. Good call, Dennis. Yeah, the idea that the WWE was going to get Dennis Rodman and do Jack, just fuck all with him. Yeah, got to be in Goldust's corner for that hot Goldust Triple H match here. And it really shows you the difference between how Eric Bischoff solved Dennis Rodman and how Vince McMahon saw him. Vince McMahon just saw him as like, oh, that weird guy who wears the dress. Yeah, sure, yeah. whatever. Oh, got to put him with Austin here. Just use him like Tyson. That's the thing. Like, you... Such an opportunity here. But he would have been a babyface in Chicago is the thing, because he was playing for the Bulls at this point. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, So this show completely bombs, like we should establish. Um, Goes down March 23rd, 1997 at the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago. Um, They do a solid gate, 18,000 in attendance, over $800,000, but only a .77 buy rate. The, the worst in WrestleMania history by a wide margin. Oof. 237,000 buys. Like, I think six WCW pay-per-views outdrew WrestleMania this year. Like, Survivor Series with Brett and Sean outdrew WrestleMania. I mean, objectively, doesn't 
Survivor Series this year feel like a much, much bigger show than this? Way bigger. Like, yeah. it's just enormous. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's any surprise this show bombed, and I don't really think it's a slight on anybody involved. Like, they had to audible. I mean, they were still messing with the main event, like the Raw before the show. As much as that was cool, like, they just had no heat on Undertaker versus Sid. Austin Brett, yeah, it's a good feud, but we saw them wrestle each other a couple months before this. They just didn't have anything that was going to draw here. And like people are very critical when they talk about this show and like, why are you putting Taker and Sid on the main event? Let's look at the last couple WrestleManias. It's yeah. not like WrestleMania is the end all be all of this company at this point. Just let's be clear about that. The only thing that's keeping WrestleMania from going the way of Starcade is Vince McMahon's desperate attempt to remind you of the history of the first couple WrestleManias at the beginning of every show. Only in Vince McMahon's mind is WrestleMania still an enormous deal. And through tireless efforts, he'll eventually get it back there. But like, this isn't weird. The last three years, WrestleMania has been shit. Nobody cared yeah. about it. So on commentary, we've got the team of Vince McMahon, Jerry Lawler, and thank God we've got Jim Ross back. Oh, sweet Jesus. I was so happy to see him. Vince McMahon's final WrestleMania on commentary. And it can't come soon enough. He yeah. is the shit on this <laughs> so, night. He's gotten worse. Like, this is the point where he's clearly not into commentary. And, like, the thing is, is that after that moment where he shows, like, a very human side, you need him to change. Yeah. And he just doesn't. He, like, doubles down on the what a maneuver and, boy, what an excellent spectacle this is. The extravaganza of all time. It's just... It, it feels phony. As the rest of the product begins to feel more real, he becomes, he just is clearly more phony than ever. The opening package recaps the history of WrestleMania without Hulk Hogan or Macho Man or Roddy Piper or all those other guys who are now in WCW or the Warrior because fuck that guy. Yep. But this year is different, as this federation is filled with broken heroes and hatred boiling over. I did like that element, that it's like, WrestleMania has been corrupted this year. That's These true. These are dark days for WrestleMania. Oh, man. Really are. Vince McMahon welcomes us to the show. No America the Beautiful this year. Yeah, that felt super odd. It was weird. It was weird. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Maybe they're whoever they were going to have do it fell through. It, it's just, it's not like Vince to let any show go if he can avoid it without having that on there. Uh, we've got a simple stage, the small entryway with the WrestleMania logo on it. Just doesn't this not feel like a big show at all? No. In fact, when we eventually get to the one and only like dollar that they put into production, which is Austin's entrance. Uh, it, that's a cool thing, but like literally nobody else gets even a thought to something different aside from some mist. Yeah. Uh, I should mention on the free for all Billy Gunn defeated flash funk in seven minutes and five seconds. I don't think you had to mention that. <laughs> no, I think everybody would have been okay if I had skipped that. Um, opening match. We've got a fatal four way tag team match as the Godwins battle the headbangers Doug Furness and Phil LaFon and the new Blackjacks. Steve, have you ever seen a tag team match of any sort that was this much of a mess? This was 
abysmal. Like, what were they trying to accomplish here? So, it seems like they're pushing the Blackjacks because they show some clips of the original Blackjacks and they do a quick interview with them and like, oh, it's Bradshaw and Barry Windham and they look kind of cool. And then the Blackjacks get eliminated after like two minutes. They get disqualified and then um, at the same time, uh, the... the um, the uh, Furnace and Lafon get counted out simultaneously. So we're down to just uh, the Godwins and the Headbangers already. I mean, it, it's one of the most blatant disqualifications of all time because the ref's just like telling JBL, like, hey, uh, you should probably get back in the ring. And he just like decks the guy in the face. <laughs> it's like, oh, all right. Well, I guess you just wanted to get disqualified then. Yep. All right. <laughs> This is after, by the way, that spot. You know that spot where you go to like suplex the guy out onto the outside from inside the ring because you're standing on the apron? They fuck it up so bad that it's almost like it's in slow motion. Like, because Bradshaw's so afraid to like drop this guy in his head that he just sort of like falls down with him and it looks horrible. Yeah, real bad. King on commentary. There's one good thing about being a dumb guy from Arkansas. You may get to be the president of the United States someday. God, that's a good line. (laughs) It's just so weird how in the 90s they love to make political jokes that they would never go near today. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, and even like in the thousands, like they never, like this is just a unique element of the 90s. We have to be topical. Well, I mean, the funny thing is, is that maybe they would have done it to, like, Obama. But, like, WWE is never going to make jokes about a Republican president. That's no. uh, for good reason, right? Go against Vince's politics. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, any other time, there's pretty much a Republican or Obama in the White House. So, crowd is dead silent. And then a stage dive from Mosh gets the pin and the headbangers win. Not, Not a great start to the show. It was during this match that I realized that Vince did not know the difference between the two headbangers <laughs> at all. No, no he <laughs> He's constantly not. calling them by the wrong names. Did he know the Godwins? Like, who? I doubt it. Did he? Do you think he knew which one was Furnace and which one was Lafon? This is the other thing, too, is that Vince is dealing with so much shit at this point. Like, yeah. there's so much going on. There's so many moving parts. This card changed so heavily. There's a good chance that he doesn't know who any of these fucking people are <laughs> at all. Yeah. No, I, There's a good chance that he went to these guys before the match started and was just like, all right, uh, Hillbilly Jim and Barry Windham, you guys are going to have to carry this one because uh, I don't know who the fuck any of the rest of these guys are. Vince just should not be doing commentary at this point. No. And like, he's got so many other duties. Why is he wasting his time with it? And the answer is because he doesn't trust JR. Yeah. He just doesn't. Jr. will finally w- either win his trust over the course of the year, it will, or it will just become necessity, like due to Vince becoming an on-screen character. Right. I'm not sure in my heart that Vince ever truly believed that Jim Ross was a great commentator. Probably not. Too Southern. I mean, he just got rid of him so many times. <laughs> like, there's no way that he sees Jim Ross as an important an element to the show as we see Jim Ross. There's just no way. Uh, we pan the crowd. We see that Lou Albano is sitting in the front row with Tony Atlas right next to him. 
Then we see the honky tonk man in the ring and he goes to join the commentary team. This is when they're running the storyline where he's searching for the next great intercontinental champion. And which goes eventually, on forever. And it'll eventually end with Rockabilly. Yeah. And that lasts like a week. And then they have Billy Gunn turn on him and form the New Age Outlaws. Thank Christ. Yeah. And now we've got our Intercontinental Championship match as Rocky Maivia defends against the Sultan, who is Rikishi with like a stereotypical Middle Eastern, like savage gimmick, and Bob Backlund and Iron Sheik backing him up. That is a weird crew. How weird is it that they have two gigantic Samoans during this decade and neither one of them gets to be Samoan? <laughs> It is a little strange. Like, the Sultan gimmick is trash. It's really, really, really bad. Putting Bob Backlund as part of it is just mystifying. I, yeah, I don't know whether there was ever, like, an explanation of why Bob Backlund was hanging out with these guys. Why is Bob Backlund still here? Why? Like, Bob Backlund wore out his welcome three years ago. Vince loves Bob Backlund. If you drew money for Vince's dad, like you were over with Vince forever. He didn't. He was one of the worst champions ever. I know. <laughs> A rare secret. Oh, my God. Like, unfortunately, WWE has such a hand on the history of wrestling at this point that you would believe that Bob Backlund was a huge success and a big part, a big link in the ultimate chain of the WWE title. Bob Backlund was trash, and they ran with him for way too long. And so seeing him still around is just the weirdest thing. So this goes like all of Rocky Maivia's matches. He gets his ass kicked the whole time and then wins with a roll-up out of nowhere. I don't know how they thought this was supposed to make him seem good. I don't know. And then his dad gets involved. Oh, God, that's so bad. So, yeah, the, the heels all beat him up. They put the boots to him. Rocky Johnson jumps the rail and gets in the ring. Tony Atlas, who they've just shown at ringside, does not get in the ring to help his tag team partner and his son. He just sits there and watches. Yep. Here's the deal, too. Rocky Johnson's heyday was really before yeah. most of WWF's audience existed. Like, that yeah. was pre... Pre-85, pre It's like pre-WrestleMania, yeah. yeah. So, like, people don't know who that is. It doesn't matter that he's the son of Rocky Johnson and Peter <laughs> Maivia. Dad is coming to bail you out. It's so reminiscent of when Rock had to come out at the Rumble to save Roman. And got a similar reaction, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> because this doesn't make your baby faces look cool or strong or anything. It just makes them look like protected, which is not what you want your baby faces to be. Uh, then Todd Pettengill interviews Ken Shamrock, who says he'll call the match right down the middle tonight and he won't be intimidated. Shamrock looks like a trillion billion bucks here. And like this is he's a pretty good promo here. He's they show so that clip ripped. They show that clip of him like just fucking destroying Billy yeah. Gunn. And it's great. He was like, oh, I didn't mean to hurt him. I just wanted to show him who I was. Oh, that's such a good line. Yeah. It, here's the deal. After this show, WWE has three money players for a decade to come. Like, if you're coming out of this and you're like, you know what? That Rocky Maya Via kid, he's got something, even though they're fucking him up. 
Yeah. Uh, that's this Austin guy. Oh, straight to the moon. And Shamrock. Shamrock. That's the guy. Bam. Got our three next stars right here lined up, ready to go. It's really surprising to me they didn't have Austin and Shamrock feud, having Austin be like, Shamrock fucked me. He stopped the match. I didn't tap out. And I guess, I guess that they're both baby faces. See, that's the thing. It wouldn't have been a great idea because neither one of those guys can look weak yet, right? Yeah. But like Austin Shamrock, I mean, we've come to it a million times, but that should have been a big money pay per view match. Well, what I don't understand is like, how don't you get to like, like Hart versus Shamrock? Yeah. After because Shamrock's belly to backs his ass here. If, yeah. And like, literally, there's a match set up right here for like whatever the next show is, King of the Ring or whatever. But like, Shamrock versus Bret Hart is a money match. Like, dude, that's, that's the excellence of execution versus the submission master. Like, that's some shit right there. Yeah. Only happens on a Raw on the way into Survivor Series, in which I'm very surprised they didn't have Shamrock shoot on Brett and take the title from him. They, I mean, they considered it. It crossed their mind. Well, Brett listed Shamrock as one of the guys he dropped the belt to. Yeah. Which, I mean, makes sense because that's, people would believe that Ken Shamrock could beat Bret Hart. But I, I don't know. They dropped the ball on Shamrock so ridiculously hard here. And I guess that's the thing, is that the past couple WrestleManias that we've talked about, they've had so few stars, like a complete dearth of any options. And here, it feels like they have options just dropping out of the sky left and right, and they just don't have time or like the ability to like make anything out of them. Like people are just slipping through their fingers, you know? Uh, then Doc Hendricks interviews Hunter Hearst Helmsley and asks him what his relationship is to China. Hunter declines to answer that question. I think the proper term is at this point uh, they were boning. Yeah, they'd be fucking. <laughs> yeah. Um, then we've got Hunter Hearst Helmsley versus Gold Dust. This feud began when Triple H came on to Marlena, angering Gold Dust, which led to a ridiculous promo segment in which Jerry Lawler asked Goldust if he was quote-unquote a queer and Goldust said no and punched King in the face. Yeah. (laughs) Legendary moment in wrestling history there. That's how you turn a guy baby face. Are you one of them queers? Oh god, that really happened. You know, guys, <laughs> whenever people point out Goldust as being like a good character in any particular way, I just always draw people's attention back to this stuff and like to say that if anything, Goldust set back gay relations with wrestling by like a decade. Yeah, we probably would have had gay marriage in like 2001 if not for Goldust. Oh my God. Fucking, this, it's so trash, man. It's so trash. So Triple H is seconded by China. Gold Dust is seconded by Marlena. Advantage Triple H. Um, yes. <laughs> they have a match. That's all it is. They, they, I don't think they work together terribly well. No. No, 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 no. And like this is during the period of time where like Triple H is, has no clear identity. Because he's no. sort of he's sort of coming out of the the blue blood. Is he a blue blood? Not really. Is he a degenerate? Not really. He's just kind of a guy. 
it's going to take him until like late 98 to figure out who the hell he is. But then 99 is going to be literally all about him. Well, it's one thing I think about is just like how many years, 96, 97, 98, 99, he's in like the exact same spot on the card at WrestleMania. He's in like the fourth or fifth biggest match. And he just, they never, the growing pains as he tries to figure out who he is. Triple H reminds, like makes me think like, there are so many guys that they give up on so fast, right? Yeah. Well, they, they, get, they give him chance after chance. He has incarnation after incarnation in this stable and that stable. And like, it, had he not gotten like four solid years of being pushed hard, he never would have figured out who he was and become arguably one of the biggest names in wrestling history. Yeah. And again, why him? What, what was so special about him? You, the only thing you can really think of is the click, right? Yeah, but that he by just the happened. time he gets his push, the click is done. The click is gone. Yeah, but by that time, that it's the right place at the right time. Like his career is a lot of right place, right time. He comes in right when Sean needs a buddy to eat with, right? So he's not getting fat <laughs> and a sober driver. Yes, so he becomes a member of the click because of that. Then the whole rest of the click leaves, so it's just him and Sean. So then he gets to Generation X with Sean, and then Sean leaves. So fuck it, Degenerate and X Pac comes back. So we restart Degeneration X with you as the leader. And then by the time late '98 comes, there's no top heel left in the company for Austin and The Rock to fight. Boom, Triple H. There it is. Like he just is at the right place at the right time at like eight different points in history. So the finish comes here when China gets in Marlena's face. Uh, Goldust picks up Marlena. Or Helmsley then hits Goldust with a jumping knee while he's distracted. He drops Marlena. China gets her in a bear hug and ragdolls her. Then Helmsley hits Goldust with the pedigree for the win. China's the star coming out of this. Yes. When China is ragdolling Marlena, yeah. first of all, it looks awesome. Second of all, um, I was really pretty sure that somebody's tit was going to pop out. Surprisingly, that did not happen. Or if it did, they hit it very well. Miracle of physics. I guess, because she's like literally ragdolling Marlena. Like, I don't think that Terry was expecting to get the treatment that she got. That was rough. Yeah, but it looked great. We go back to Shawn Michaels doing an interview on WWF.com, and this is where we get the amazing HBK typing GIF. And it's I think it's the GIF that I've used the most in my entire time on my internet. It's so perfect for everything. Uh, next up, we've got a tag team championship match as Owen Hart and British Bulldog defend against Vader and Mankind. There's really no build to this. Mankind and Vader are both managed by Paul Bear, and um, they had a match against Undertaker and Sid on one of the Raws on the way into this show. The real story is that Owen and Bulldog are having problems with each other. They wrestled in the finals of the European title tournament on Raw. Bulldog won that match, and there's been some tension between them since then. Yeah, because Bulldog is the stupid one, and but resents, but not as quite as stupid as Owen would like to believe. 
Yeah, they do an interesting thing here where JR ambushes Bulldog and Owen during their entrance in the ramp and like asks them, you know, if they're getting along and who the leader of the team is. And Owen Hart's like, you shut your mouth, Jim Ross, but everybody knows I'm the leader of this team. <laughs> and then the whole time, like Vince and Lawler are heckling Jim Ross from the table, like, what are you doing over there? Get back here. Um, so it's really heel versus heel here, but Bulldog is a baby face. The crowd is cheering Bulldog. Yeah. He's really the only baby face here. Yeah. Um, Vader smashes Owen, uh, sets up for the Vader bomb, but Bulldog cuts it off. Mankind and Bulldog tag in, but not really. They just kind of both get in the ring and somehow become the legal men. Yep. Um, Bulldog suplexes Vader, which was awesome. Um, Bulldog, um, he gets double teamed. Vader goes up to the top rope, comes off and Bulldog catches him out of the air and power slams him. That was awesome. Yeah. Bulldog was looking like a star here. Um, Owen comes off the top rope with a missile drop kick. He goes for a sunset flip. Vader tries to sit down on him, but Owen moves. Owen hits a crossbody for two, but then gets knocked out with a body avalanche. Uh, Vader and Mankind team up for like a Cactus Jack elbow drop variation of the demolition decapitation, where Mankind comes off the apron for the elbow drop. Yep. Uh, Mankind and Vader work heat on Owen. Owen uh, scores with a spinning heel kick and then makes a hot tag to Bulldog. Mankind cuts off Bulldog with the mandible claw, and then Vader hits a body avalanche that knocks both guys down to the floor. They don't recover. We've got a double count out. Uh, not a good finish, but I thought that was actually a good tag match. Yeah, it was pretty good, honestly. Vader and Mankind as a team, I think, was something maybe they could have stuck with for longer to set up a feud between them. Somebody in Vader as a team definitely could have been something because at this point, even if Vader's worthless, like he's like the ultimate, like wear him down big guy tag team member, right? Like you could have done something with that. Yeah. I think if you're not going to push him as a singles, like, yeah, you could probably get a good tag team out of him. Yeah. If nothing else, this, neither one of these guys is really doing shit. <laughs> Then Todd Pettengill narrates a tremendous video package for the Bret Hart-Steve Austin match that I love so much, I'm going to read the transcription of it. Yes, please. Imagine, for over a decade, you fought to reach the pinnacle of your profession. Through blood, sweat, and passion, you've earned the respect of fans, friends, and even your adversaries. Then you walk away. When you return six months later, nothing is the same. There are no friends. There is no respect. Even your fans have changed. At the heart of this change is a man who spits in the face of your every accomplishment. He attacks you physically and verbally. This man mocks your legacy. He uses, uses it as a stepping stone. Like a false prophet, he spews forth his rhetoric. His followers carry placards singing his praise. Injustice after injustice has finally caused you to snap. Now the finger is pointed at you. You're the one who's changed. They say your ego is your enemy. What happened to you? There's only one solution. To awaken from this nightmare, you must defeat him. To reclaim your legacy, you must make him beg for mercy. But what if Stone Cold Steve Austin wins? 
What becomes of Brett the Hitman Hart then? God, that's so good. Yeah, like kudos to whoever wrote this. You could not set the stage any better for this match. Bret Hart fights for his legacy. And it's such a perfect encapsulation. Like Bret Hart, what I really love about it is that it brings home exactly the way Bret Hart must be feeling in this situation. Like here he comes. He's been the most beloved stalwart member of the roster for a decade. He's the guy unquestioned. He's like a, a guy worthy of respect. And then he comes back and everything's different and Austin yeah. won't stop coming after him. Yeah. It, it's just so great. And it makes you understand like Bret Hart hates Austin. He vicious. He absolutely can't stand him because Bret Hart, Austin won't respect him. And if Austin would just show him a modicum of respect, this could all be avoided. But Austin will never show respect. No. No. Steve Austin pisses on the legacy of Bret Hart. Yes. Pisses all over him. Attacks his family. Mocks his legacy. And the only way Bret Hart can reclaim that mantle to silence those demons is to beat Steve Austin. But what we never consider... Is how long can a man fight the darkness before he's consumed by it? Exactly. The question is not, what if Bret Hart wins? What if Bret Hart loses? But what is Bret Hart going to have to give up to win this match? Who is Bret Hart going to have to become in order to be able to beat someone like Steve Austin? And the answer is he's going to have to become Steve Austin. <laughs> yes, he finally gives into the darkness and becomes the monster he's been fighting against. And... I feel like this is like the only time this story has ever been told in pro wrestling. And I think it's my favorite one. Yeah. This is one of the greatest heel turns of all time. And the heat that comes out on the other side is nuclear, which is weird because most of the time when heels have like a really good reason to turn heel, there's at least some of the fan base that's like, yeah, but I get it. And actually I like him. I've always liked him. I'm not going to boo him on the other side of this. Nobody likes Bret Hart. (laughs) No, and he has the best run of his career in this heel role. He finally finds charisma and promo skills he had always been lacking as a babyface. Well, and I think the problem was that Vince tried for so long to get the real Bret Hart because you have to find what like the wrestler is to at their core. Find what that is and just like paint it. Like, yeah, the problem stu- is the real Bret Hart isn't very likable, is he? That's the problem is that Vince thought that the real Bret Hart was like this ultimate athlete, this silent and stoic man. The real Bret Hart is a whiny asshole. (laughs) God, I hate to say it. He's just a bitter person who's very sensitive and very uh, insular and obsessed with ways that he's been slighted. And that's just the truth. That's his book. That's his interviews. He's, He's a person that takes things to heart. And sorry, I didn't mean for the pun right there. And so that that's what this character is, is that all the slights that happened to Bret Hart, suddenly they've all piled on top of each other. And now he's just given it back to everybody who gave it to him. And like, that makes total sense. Yep. So we've got our submission match as Bret Hart takes on Steve Austin with Ken Shamrock as the special guest referee. Um, in preparation for this, I obviously watched the whole show, but I also watched um, – there's a clip – there's a Daily Motion video where they took the Steve Austin podcast where he does commentary for this match and put it over the match itself. If you've never listened to this podcast, you should. 
Austin breaking down this match with Brett and everything he was thinking about it and the preparation that went into it and his thoughts and feelings during the match was just fascinating. Because truthfully, Steve knew that this was his shot. Yeah, he was not going to give away his shot. Like, all through his time in WCW, all he wanted was just a shot at a top guy. Can I get in the ring with Flair? Can I get in the ring with Hogan? Can, can he I get in the beat- ring with Sting? And it just didn't happen. They can just beat me in 10 minutes, but just give me an opportunity to show that I can do it. And this is finally that opportunity with Brett, who wants to make him a star. And, like, I, I, I don't even know... Like it gets me genuinely emotional to think of all the things that had to come together for this moment to happen for the next several years of wrestling to happen. All of this had to convalesce into this one moment. And then Austin nails it. Yeah. Could not have put on a better performance in this match from the second he appears on screen backstage, walking towards the ring he's dialed in. And then the fucking glass shatters. Oh, this is such a great. So yeah, the glass shatters, and we we hear his music, and then they go to a shot of the entrance way where they've set up an Austin three sixteen glass pane, and that glass pane shatters, and Austin comes through the curtain. Gigantic props to whoever came up with this idea, because literally it probably cost him like ten bucks in like <laughs> yeah. sugar glass to put this together, but like so just cool. A defining moment of his career walking through that glass. Symbolic of Steve Austin shattering the glass ceiling he had been under for his entire career. And just the look in his eyes, like it's on. I yeah, love I tell it. the story. Um, he doesn't get a massive pop, but it's probably like 50% cheers, maybe 60. Yeah. Um, Austin is in phenomenal shape. Some of the best I ever saw him in. On the podcast, he said he stopped drinking for the couple weeks leading up to the match to cut weight. And, like, it's not just that he's in great shape, but he's moving so fluidly. Yeah. Because, like, Austin could be a little stiff, especially later on after the broken neck and all of that stuff. But he like, does have a bad knee here, but, yeah, he's in, he's definitely moving well, especially considering he, I think he tore his PCL in that match at Final Four, yeah. slipped on the ring apron. And, like, Austin at his best is so kinetic. Like, everything yeah. that he's doing is just, like, his head's moving, his arms are moving. He's taking bumps, but he's rolling. And he never stops moving. There's a, It's fascinating to watch him work. It's like him and The Rock have this way of just, like, no matter what they're doing, your eyes are always drawn to them. And, like, I'm not a lot of people have ever wrestled like that. Brett gets pyro to spruce up his entrance, and he mostly gets cheers, but there are some noticeable boos. Yeah. Brett gets to the ring Austin tackles him immediately they start fighting they are rolling around punching each other they roll under the ropes out to the floor the intensity is just unbelievable here yeah and there's some live rounds being thrown here don't let anybody tell you different Austin hit the post here and it made the loudest noise I've ever heard yeah I was genuinely worried that he seriously hurt himself I'm like he must have just smacked this thing as hard as he could have with his hand to make that noise imagine if he like breaks his fucking hand right there it's like no Austin be careful um austin drops brett on the railing then clotheslines him into the crowd and they go right out into the fans austin grabs a drink takes a drink of coke then tries to like take 
the drink tray from the, did you catch this? Tries to get the drink tray away from the concession guy, but the guy won't give it to him. Yes. Which the guy I mean, was not giving up his fucking cokes. He was probably making a dollar each time he sold one. I'm to say he's on commission. He's like, no, fuck you. You can't yeah. have this. That's not working for the working man like Steve Austin <laughs> claims to. That's amazing. Um, Just electric here. Austin tries to pile drive Brett on the floor, but he gets backdropped on the concrete. Uh, they go back to ringside. Austin hits an elbow drop off the guardrail. Uh, Brett goes to whip Austin into the steps, but Austin reverses it. Brett just brutally hits the steps. Austin goes up on the apron, comes off with a clothesline. Austin grabs the steps, gets him up over his head. Brett kicks him in the gut, and he drops them in what looks like a really dangerous way. Like yes. behind his head in a way that it looked like he could have tweaked his back. Yep. Seems like he was fine, though. Um Austin uses a leverage move to send Brett into the post. They finally get back in the ring. Austin ducks his head for a backdrop, and Brett catches him with a swinging neck breaker. Brett then hits a diving elbow and goes to work on Austin's knee. Um, Austin comes back with a stunner out of nowhere. I love that he didn't kick Brett in the gut here because he's selling the knee, which is just great psychology. Oh, I love it. Just those little touches most guys wouldn't have thought of. Brett goes back to Austin's leg and locks him in the figure four around the ring post. Brett gets a steel chair, like great vines it on Austin's leg, goes to the top rope to pilmanize Austin's leg. Austin recovers, sits up, gets the chair off his leg and nails Brett with it for like the loudest pop of the match. Fuck yeah. Crowd goes crazy for that. Like tired of goody two shoes, baby faces. They want a guy who just fights. And like Austin is so like a ball of fire at this yeah. point in the match too. Like you can see the, like I, I know that like the initial plan must've been for the double turn at the end. But like watching it unfold that way as the match goes on is just like a work of art. He's got so much baby face fire. Yes. He just won't stop coming. Austin nails Brett with a huge chair shot to the back, hits a diving elbow. JR's really putting this match over on commentary. It's not about talking about it. It's not about talking about the past. It's not about a guy with a bald spot out here posing. It's about right now, and it's a hell of a fight. Love that uh, that little slip in there. Yeah. <laughs> Austin with a Russian leg sweep, and he applies um, some kind of arm bar I've never really seen before. He's like sitting behind Brett and has his boot like on the back of his neck. It was a cool looking hold. Yeah, I like that. Um, he eventually breaks it and goes to a Boston Crab. Brett still won't submit, so he goes to put Brett in the sharpshooter, and Brett rakes his eyes to get out. A little heelish there. There was. Well, Brett Hart wouldn't have gone to the eyes, would he? God, no. And, like, literally on commentary, they're just like, oh, what the hell? Um, they go to the floor, and we get one of the critical points in the match. Austin gets thrown into the railing, and he comes out bleeding. Brett... Um, bladed Austin here. I've heard some people try to say that that's like, oh, Austin, you know, didn't know how to blade or whatever. Like Austin knew how to blade. Brett said, I'll blade you because Brett wanted to protect Austin. Right. 
Blading is not allowed at this point. Um, Brett knows he can take the heat politically. Like he's on a 20 year contract. Vince can't fuck with him. Austin could still get in some trouble here. And let's be clear without the blood, this match is great, but it's not iconic. This is probably the best argument for blood and wrestling. I can't, I am completely anti blood and wrestling. I don't know if you know that about me, but I, it's not something that I like. I don't think that most of the time when it's done, it adds anything to the match, especially not when it's done frequently. Like back in the old MWA days, it didn't mean a goddamn <laughs> Every thing. single match. Yeah. Back when like Flair and Michaels would blade every fucking match, it meant nothing. This moment right here, just the still image, the close up on Austin as the blood runs down his teeth and it's like in his eyes and he's screaming in pain is one of the most iconic images in wrestling history. And it's amazing. There's so many things about this that make it work. Brett blocks the camera with his back. He blades Austin perfectly, just a tiny little cut right above the eye. Looks like he could have actually like nicked it on something, not right. like just a blatant like carve his whole forehead deal. Yes. And Austin just gushes. He just bleeds everywhere, but not in a dangerous way. Right. It's like a small puddle, but mostly he just wrestles with the blade job for a while. So yeah. like it's just all over his face. Yeah, like his blood doesn't on. clot up because he doesn't have hair. It doesn't get in his hair. It just runs down his face. And it just looks incredible. Yeah. Like, like just an apocalyptic badass. The day after the show, Vince called Brett into his office and asked him if he bladed Austin. Brett denied it, and Vince just kind of dropped it. All he wanted was plausible deniability. Yep. Um, crowd goes crazy for the blood. The pop when... Austin, like they see the blood has like run down onto his arm is gigantic. Yes. And then they just keep going. Like this isn't the finish. Like that's the best part. It's that Austin just has to deal with this now. Uh, back in the ring, Brett hits a backbreaker and another elbow drop. He gets a chair. He smashes Austin's knee with it. Goes to lock in the sharpshooter, but Austin rakes his eyes and a nice callback to earlier in the match. Yep. Austin struggles to the corner. Brett comes after him. Austin kicks Brett right in the nuts. Yes. Austin struggles to his feet. JR just goes, Austin's a stud, which is just a bit of commentary that's always stuck with me. Yeah. And like this is the beginning. I don't know whether JR was directed to put over Austin like this. Because Vince kind of goes silent towards the end of the match. Or Vince like, just gets out of JR's way. Yeah. Like, JR just takes over and just starts putting Austin over like so crazy. And, like, this is sort of the beginning of, like, JR is Austin's friend or whatever. Because here JR is calling the moment that Austin becomes a star. And he is literally just like, this guy Austin can't be stopped. He's got the heart of a fucking yeah. animal. He can't. He won't stop. You can't make him quit. Like it's this is the first time in WB I feel like JR is allowed to make a JR call. And it couldn't have come at a bigger time. Yeah. Brett takes his sternum bump into the corner. Austin revs up, stomps a mud hole in Brett. Crowd is just going wild for Austin now. Yeah, it's over. We got a new top star right here. Austin with a superplex. 
He grabs an extension cord and brings it into the ring, strangles Brett with it. Brett is on the ring apron, about to go out. But the ring bell is right there. I watched this match twice. I did not catch when the ring bell got there. Did you? I, I have to imagine that like somebody at ringside put it there, but no. Because they like show them on the apron, and it's not there. And then they pan back out again, and it is. So somebody, somebody planned it. Maybe Brett or Austin tried to bring it in, but yeah, I don't remember how it happened. But it's there, which is, you know, good Chekhov's gun there. Yeah. Brett grabs the bell, gets Austin in the face with it. Austin's down. Brett picks Austin's leg, locks in the sharpshooter, right in the middle of the ring. Yeah, he's got it in so tight. Austin writhes in pain. Blood gushes from his cut. He screams. He pounds the mat. It looks like he's going out, but he comes to life surges up, nearly breaks the hold. Brett goes to the mat, but he's able to hold on to it. He recovers. Crowd chants for Austin. He's within inches of breaking out, but Brett holds on. Austin reaches for the ropes, but he goes limp. He's lost too much blood. Shamrock is screaming, you know, Steve, do you give up? Do you want to quit? If you don't answer me, I'm going to stop the fight. Austin doesn't answer. Shamrock has no choice but to call for the bell. Bret Hart wins by stoppage. There are a couple of really brilliant parts about the ending to this match. The first is that it's been established. Now submission moves are just a thing that are broken out of. Like that's just a thing that anybody who has a submission finisher, you break out of it every match, like a couple times before they really get it in. Back in the day, if Bret Hart got you, it was over. Like, if Bret Hart got you locked in the sharpshooter, people didn't just get out of it. That's just not how this worked. I really, I can't even really think of anybody who reversed completely out of the sharpshooter once it was fully locked in. No, nothing's jumping out at me. So the fact that Austin comes so close to getting out is unbelievable. Because the fans, like, are just like, oh my god, you're right there. Like, if you'd just gotten him a little bit more, he could have, like, rolled him up or pushed him off. But then Hart just cinches it right back in, and it's done. Like, there's no moving. It's over. But, like, for Austin to just keep reaching, even as he's passing out, because, like, his eyes are closed and his head slumped on the ground, but his arm's still reaching for the ropes until finally it drops. And then for Shamrock to have to call it, there has never been a better end to a wrestling match than this one. How many times have we seen that finish since then? And it's never even come close. The closest I've ever seen, and this was actually in TNA, was in, um, I think it was one of the triple threat matches between Samoa Joe, Christopher Daniels. No, it's been just uh, a Samoa Joe versus AJ Styles, where Styles is in the Coquina clutch, and he reaches, and he can't see it because he's in the clutch, but he's one inch from the ropes when he finally gives up. Like, he's just, like, that close, but he doesn't know. Yeah, his eyes are covered. And he passes out. Yeah. Like, that's cool. This is better. This is so iconic. The image of Austin with blood gushing down his face. And they've shot around the blood to this point. They've used camera angles to avoid showing it. But here, they just go right in tight on his face. And, like, I don't know whose decision that was. And and I especially imagine that, like, it was probably a Vince call. I think it had to be. That's probably why Vince 
didn't actually like investigate to see who did the blade job because he realized that it was working. <laughs> but holy shit! And then like this is the only time I can ever remember like the baby face is down on the ground, beaten, defeated, done at the end of a match, but he still won. Like that, yeah. I can't. You can't get past that idea that Brett didn't really beat him. No, he couldn't make him quit. Austin like did not give up. And JR really emphasized that on commentary. Austin did not give up. And that's so genius to just make Austin somebody who's just incapable of stopping. Like he's he's not as good as Brett is, but he's tougher. Yeah. Like that's important. Oh. This might be the best wrestling match of all time. I come short of saying that because I've seen a number of matches that I think are better matches. What I will say is that this might be the most perfect match of all time. Does that distinction make sense? Where like everything went exactly right. Yeah, the- I've got no like two tiny little nitpicks, but yeah, it's hard to imagine how this match could have been any better. Yeah, like there are matches that I enjoy more that I think are more epic or that the story that was told was bigger and better, but this match is perfect. It accomplishes everything that it wants to do. I have never seen a double turn executed this well, ever. The story is just so perfect. Yes, and these two characters are at such a crossroads at the perfect point to intersect with each other like this. And for that ending to happen the way that it does, and they, this crowd hates Bret Hart when he goes back and starts attacking the leg of Austin after the match. They hate him. They love Austin now. And when they both came out, they were just kind of vaguely 50-50 on both guys. It's incredible to accomplish that in one match. Bret poses, but he's not satisfied. The demons are still there. He has to destroy Austin. Goes after Austin's leg. He goes to apply the sharpshooter again. So Shamrock grabs him and waist locks him and gets him up like 10 feet in the air as he does he it. Fucking half German suplexes his ass and it looks amazing. This and then he like, like the moment. He fucking squares up with yeah. Brad. Like, let's go. Let's go. Yeah. He's like, you want to do it? Like, I'm standing. Fight me. And a huge pop for Shamrock there, too. Yeah. And Brett, like a chicken shit powders. And leaves to a chorus of booze. And here, I will argue, the blood is iconic. The ending is amazing, perfect. But not neither of those is the most important part of this match for getting Austin over as the character that he will become. This next part is the most important part, where yeah. he leaves under his own power. A referee comes out, tries to help him, and Austin stuns him, which was Austin's idea that he pitched Vince on, was let me stun a ref to get my heat back. And it's perfect. And like he does it, like he doesn't even have one leg. He literally falls yeah. down into the stunner, but it it's a shit stunner, but yeah. what's it he, matter? And then he just hurls himself out of the ring into the ropes and limps his ass to the back. But as he's limping back, and Ross is like, nobody's gonna help him out of here. So Austin doesn't need anybody. That's the toughest man we've ever seen. And then like, they zoom in on the blood stain on the candy. Yes. And it's like literally like been a murder. It's like a lake, like it's still wet where his head was. Ugh. Like at the end of this, like I had to pause the show before I continued it because it was like 
I needed like a cigarette afterwards. Like it's like the perfect moment. Like it doesn't get better than that. If that had closed the show, that we would think of this as one of the best WrestleManias, even though it wasn't. No, it's a one match show. But yeah, yeah, if that match had gone on last, this show would be remembered much better. Agreed. Instead, we've got two more matches. We've got the Chicago Street Fight as the Nation of Domination take on the Legion of Doom and Ahmed Johnson. Uh, the Nation is Farouk, Crush, and Savio Vega. And backing them up, they've got Clarence Mason, D'Lo Brown, PG-13, and some other randos. All right, look. The Nation of Domination is not a great idea for a stable. Nope. Let's just put that out there. However, if you were going to have a stable of a bunch of black nationalists who decide that they're just done with white people altogether, you cannot fill that stable with white people. <laughs> It isn't. Yeah, they were trying. They didn't want to go all the way with them being black nationalists. So they put in a Hawaiian dude and a Hispanic dude. And the rappers are white guys. Yeah, and they you suck. Find any black rappers at all? No, no black rappers in America in 1997. I mean, I, I guess that they just wanted to get guys who could like take bumps if necessary. Could have gotten Oscar from Men on a Mission. I'm sure he was available. Yeah, where are, like, Mabel and Oscar? Like, that's the thing. Can they just not find any black people? Is that what it is? Like, they're they're out there, Vince. Go, go get them. I kind of love the rapping entrance, though. If it were with people who could rap, like, <laughs> yeah. this would be a good idea. Like, I don't... Look, I don't hate the idea of a black pride stable, especially at this point in this company. However... The execution, as we've been over before, is trash. <sighs> they announced that WrestleMania 14 will take place in Boston, but the tickets are not on sale yet. Please do not call the box office. <laughs> that was kind of weird. Yeah, it really was. Well, why don't they have tickets on sale? I, don't you want the tickets on sale when you make the announcement? Isn't I, that I think... your maximum level of excitement? Is this the first time that they announced like where WrestleMania was going to be the next year? Like, no, they did it. Um, they announced WrestleMania seven for the LA Coliseum at WrestleMania six. And we saw how that turned out. Yeah. But I don't think they usually made those deals that no. far in advance. That one was special. Yeah. This, so this maybe was this unusual. I think that they announced a year in advance. So maybe this is the first time. Cause I seem to recall that back in those days, like it, they didn't put the tickets on sale until like survivor series. <laughs> Yeah, it was a much it was a much shorter build back then. Whereas now, yeah, the tickets are on sale like over a year in advance. Yeah. Um, big pop for the Road Warriors in their hometown. Ahmed comes out rocking spiked shoulder pads, which is awesome. Yeah, they look like badasses together. Yeah, like wow. Ahmed, Ahmed definitely looks like he belongs in this team. Just fucking put him with the World Warriors full time. Just fucking make him the third one. It's not like the other two can work really anymore. Have I gone crazy or was this actually an entertaining match? Not a good match, but an entertaining match. It was good. Like, look, you can absolutely <laughs> get something out of a big brawl between like Savio Vega and Farouk and the Road Warriors and Ahmed Johnson. Crush is also there, so whatever. But five of these people are killing it. Ahmed, like two minutes into the match, does a front flip plancha over the guardrail and into the crowd. It's awesome. 
what the, what, hell is this, what the hell was this guy thinking? <laughs> this is why he got hurt constantly. This is why he had to wear a million different pads. Had to wear his knee pads up on his thighs and like two pairs of arm pads. I got to tell you, like, this is one of the things I loved about Ahmed Johnson when I was a kid is that he just did stupid, reckless nonsense. Yes, every match. And his finisher always looked like it was kill a guy's because he oh never hit it the same God. way twice. Yeah, <laughs> he would just drop him right on their shoulder trying to do that tiger bomb. But I loved the Pearl River plunge because it just looked so fucking nasty. Of course it and, knocked you out. It was real. Yeah, like, yeah, it, it's... It's almost like every single time it was when Mazawa went for the Tiger Driver and accidentally put Kawada directly on his neck. It was just like he was going for that every time. Hawk goes to swing a two-by-four. It hits the top rope, and he loses control of it, and it flies up in the air. But then he catches it out of the air, and Vince, you can like hear Vince breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, that thing was... I was so sure it was going in. <laughs> it's going to kill crowd. somebody. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? God, it reminds me of a couple of years ago when Lesnar chopped up that car with an axe and yeah. just, like, threw the door into the crowd. Oh, my God. Why do they ever let people have dangerous stuff near the crowd, ever? Well, it gets worse. Well, a couple of terrible things happen here. First, Animal tries to pile drive Farouk through the announce table but they lose their balance and just fall off. Which is probably good because the way the announce taper caves in later on, it's like, ooh, that would have been nasty. A noose comes... Well, first, Farouk gets spine-busted through one of the announce tables by Ahmed. Then a noose comes out and Savio wraps it around Ahmed's neck. Highly questionable. Yeah, guys. Um, Maybe don't do a lynch in. Thank God Crush didn't do it, or it would have been on the news. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, then Farouk chokes Hawk with the noose. Um, Ahmed gets ganged up on by Savio and the bodyguard. King goes, did you see Farouk? And no, we didn't, because they totally missed what happened here. Yep. Turns out he went to the top rope got thrown off to the floor and did like a somersault bump and landed on his ass. Jesus. This match was insane. Like, I I wonder if they just realized like, oh shit, we got to follow the greatest yeah. match of all time. Time for somebody to die. <laughs> yep. I just love the idea that like this group of guys looked at each other and was like, well... None of us take bumps ever, so who's going to die today? Oh. All of us. Ahmed hits Farouk with a spine buster. Hawk gets a fire extinguisher from under the ring and starts spraying it, and it quickly becomes apparent this is a real fire extinguisher. Yes, this is not a worked fire extinguisher at yeah, all. He grabbed the wrong one. He's just like actually spraying people with this shit that burns their eyes and their lungs. Yeah, real chemicals in the air <laughs> in a public place. God, imagine being Vince McMahon watching this shit. It's like it's and that's the thing too, is that in these days, Vince McMahon is able to talk to the people in the back, but he's not controlling everything from the from the desk. <laughs> Vince commentary. Oh, what a maneuver! Hits the mute button. Fuck! God damn it! Get that thing away from him! 
Bruce. <laughs> oh my god. Jesus. Yeah. The entire nation jumps in the ring. Ahmed fights them off. Clearly jumping in the ring to get away from the shoot fire extinguisher that's going off. I would. Shit. <laughs> Doomsday device on crush. And then they hit a clothesline with the two by four uh, to get the pin. I I enjoyed this match. I thought this was fun. Considering the people involved, this is, this is might be the best match of Ahmed Johnson's career. Yeah, not a lot of competition for that spot. It's definitely the best match of the road warriors comeback. I mean, it's just, this is the best case scenario. Double doomsday, or then a uh, double doomsday device on both members of PG-13. Yep, which is good. Let them die. At this point in horror, I realize there's still 40 minutes left in the show. (sighs) This goes on, this main event went on a long time. Uh, Let's just... Just the entrances alone. Oh my god. I fell asleep during The Undertaker's entrance. I watched it immediately before I watched the show immediately before we did this podcast. And like so this show had been great. I'm into it. I'm locked in. I fell asleep during The Undertaker's entrance and then again during Sid's entrance. God, well, first Shawn Michaels comes out and he takes fucking forever to get to the ring, to get in the ring. He's slapping hands with all of the fans. He, like, says something to Vince and then, like, opens his jacket to block Vince's view and flashes the click sign. Yeah, that that is weird. That was questionable. Also, I thought Sean's career was over. He seems to be walking okay here. Yeah, he seems to be real healthy and real enthusiastic right here. He got his smile back. He found it. It was under the couch. And then, like, he hops on guest commentary, which... If there's a list of the all-time worst guest commentators in wrestling history, Shawn Michaels is on that goddamn list. Real bad. Real bad. It's just, like, Shawn Michaels has never been an amazing promo. Like, he's cut some great promos, but they're all, like, he's had time to think about it and monologue a little bit. Like, he's not, like, an off-the-cuff genius. Oh, Todd Pettengill interviews Sid. He doesn't say much of note. It's main event time for the WWF Championship. Psycho Sid defends against The Undertaker. This is what the world has come to. Yep. Undertaker out first. He's got a throwback look with the trench coat, the cowboy hat, the gray gloves. Interesting that he went with that here. Yeah, I I actually went back and looked because I was like, man, he's not still wearing this stuff, is he? And he wasn't. No, he... I mean, he hadn't ditched it. Well, he ditched the gray years ago. He'd been wearing the purple gloves. And then at Survivor Series, he went to like the kind of leather pirate look. Yep. Um, Sid makes his entrance and he actually gets booed, which is unusual because he was crazy over as a face at this point. He didn't get booed by me because fuck yeah, Sid's in the main event again. Sid's the man. Two for two, baby. And this is the last one. So let's... Like, we've really had a great time talking about, about Sid on this podcast, but until we start coming like WCW 2000, this is pretty much the end of us t- getting to talk about Sid. And that's terrible. Yeah, we've pretty much covered all the major aspects of his life. So I think he might be the first 
wrestler that we've actually covered like basically their whole career. Complete story. Yeah, we've told the Sid story. Yeah. Over time, we might tell the full Ken Shamrock story and all these other guys. No, we told the full K Quick story, I guess. Yeah, you can go back and like listen to these podcasts in a specific order and get Sid's whole career. Maybe I'll put it that way on YouTube, just like the Sid story. Sid package. Yeah. Uh, Taker and Sid stare down in the middle of the ring, which is probably the best part of this match. Oh, God, yeah. And then Brett shows up, which I loved this. Brett shows up to be a dick and gets on the mic. He yells at Sean, says he's a faker with a pussy foot injury. Uh. (laughs) Talks trash to Undertaker and Sid, and then Sid gets tired of Brett's shit and nails him with the powerbomb. That is my favorite moment of the entire show. (laughs) Yeah, that was epic. Agents show up to scrape Brett off the canvas and take him to the back. Yep. If I could just watch Sid give Bret Hart the power, the fucking power bomb every night for the rest of my life, I, I could be happy. And then unfortunately the bell has to ring. Yeah. This could have been good if they had just done like a five minute balls to the wall match or like a 10 minute match with a lot of Gaga they do 20 minutes and they don't have any gaga. Well, I had a theory. So I watched the whole match and it sucked. Yeah. And then I went back to the start and watched all the entrances and all the stuff of Bret Hart again. And then I fast forwarded to the last three minutes where they're just Bret Hart comes back again and like interferes in the match. And literally from that point to the end, it's a great match. <laughs> yeah. The end where Bret Hart interferes and then Sid gets tombstoned and pinned. Yeah. But like the part where like, Sid almost Sid gets choke slam, but then he do, is going to go for the power bomb, and then Brett interferes. Like that's a good, that's good, that's everything you want from this match. Twenty minutes, twenty minutes they gave them. Sid doesn't. Sid has like four moves, and like they're really good moves. But Sid man. applies the longest fucking bear hug I've ever seen in the middle yes. of this match. Yes, he does. <sighs> Okay, we got to talk about this. This is the match where allegedly Sid shit his pants. I I was very closely looking <laughs> to see if I could find any hint of pants shitting. Were there signs of Dookie? It's not evident. I don't. Not evident. Maybe. <laughs> Imagine being the Undertaker and Sid shit his pants and you have to tombstone him. I mean, I don't know at what point during this he was supposed to have shit his pants. That is an unanswered question. So if it's just like during the tombstone or whatever, I don't know. What I will say is after Taker pins Sid, he does get up and move away really fast. Did not want to keep smelling that. And Sid very carefully just stays laying there until the lights go out and then he bails. So I I don't know if you want to use that as proof. I, I don't know. They just put this crowd to sleep, like just hold after hold and like not good holds, like just laying there, just standing there. Here's the thing, man, like Brett and and Austin so should have gone last, but like any match but this one should have gone last. I, I get why they did this. 
because the title goes last. That was Vince's philosophy. The the match between the big giants goes on last. That's Vince's philosophy. I get it. But you had one of the greatest matches of all time two matches ago. And by the end of the show, people had basically forgotten it and were just filing out bored. The worst WrestleMania main event of all time. It is. And that's so saying something because I hate so many of the WrestleMania main events. Give, they me, almost... give me Hogan Bundy, Hogan Slaughter over this shit any day. Let's be clear. What's the ranking of the best WrestleMania main events to this point? God, it's not a very illustrious list, is it? I think it's Hogan Warrior. Yeah, Hogan Warrior, Hogan Savage, Hogan Andre are the good ones so far. But mostly they suck. They're yeah. bad every single year, but this is the worst one. And just imagine what it takes to be the worst. Just an abominable match here. I hate the Iron Man match. Oh, I went off at length last episode. I don't need to do it again. You listen to that one. You're our audience. I know you did. This is so much worse than that. I'd watch that match five times before I'd watch this 20 minutes. And like... We're the biggest Sid Marks on the planet. Yes. He's had the match against Shawn Michaels at Survivor Series was great. This. And this is Sid at the peak of his powers. Like yeah. Sid's the right guy. Like Sid's having matches with Brett where he's killing it. He's having matches with Shawn where he's killing it. He's other matches with Taker. Good. They just way overexposed it here. And to be perfectly honest, like The Undertaker's a great worker, but he doesn't have 20 minutes worth of shit to do at this point either. No. This isn't like working boots, Taker, like no. he'd be later. He's still the dead man. Can't sell for shit. Has like five moves he's going to do, and that's it. So like, I just don't know what they thought this was going to be. I, I can't imagine that they... It, like Vince is really sitting over there with a headset on, is he thinking this is good? That this is what he wants? I mean, Taker does carry the title for about six months, but he's a mid-card champion. I mean, let's talk about Taker getting the title here. Yeah. I think it's just kind of like we can count on Taker. I mean, they yeah. also could have just gone with Brett, had Brett be the champion coming out of this, which probably would have been better since he was the hottest thing in the company anyway. Well, see, that's the thing, is that – in my heart, I genuinely believe that Brett Austin should have been for the for the title in the main event. That's how you fix this show. Keep every other match exactly the same. Just switch the order of Taker, Sid, and Austin Brett. If Brett is the champion, does he have the character motivation to turn heel, though? Yeah, I guess, because he has Doesn't he have screwed. to have been screwed? Hmm... I don't know. You could probably pull it off anyway. It might not have been as good, but anyway. Yeah. I, I don't know. There's no perfect answer, I guess. No. It was not it was not a good time. The company's in transition. Yeah. When in doubt, put the belt on the one person you know isn't leaving and just figure yeah. it out from there. Taker isn't gonna lose his smile. Yeah. He doesn't have one to lose. <laughs> Taker's showing up for work, period. So we come down the stretch as Sid hits a clothesline off the second rope. Taker recovers, sets up for the tombstone. Sid slips out and tombstones Taker. He mocks Undertaker's pin, but Taker kicks out at two. They go to the floor, at which point Brett shows up and hits Sid in the back with a chair. 
in the ring. Taker recovers. He choke slams Sid, but Sid recovers quickly. He goes for a power bomb, gets distracted by Brett. Brett hits a hangman. Sid turns around into a tombstone. Taker gets the one, two, three, and wins the world title. Big pop, but the match sucked. Yeah, match is trash. The fans wanted to see him win. Don't get yeah. me wrong. Well, it's a huge moment for him to win. Like he hasn't been the champion since he was, but he had the belt for six days or whatever in '91, and he hasn't been the champion since. And he's never had it as a baby face. And he's never main evented WrestleMania before. Right. Um, so yeah, the, the, the Brett Sid thing was supposed to lead to a Brett Sid match at the April in your house, but Sid had an injury or it was softball season or something and he couldn't do the match. So they ended up doing a Brett Austin rematch instead. That was much better. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> it was pretty great. And you know, that's our wrap for WrestleMania 13. What a weird, wacky, fun show. Yeah, I feel like we could have just gone on and on and on about the Brett Austin match for like another 20 minutes. We did. I think this was our longest show ever. But like, it has to be cut. Like, not only is that match amazing and we had to talk about it in detail, but like this period where like they're trying to summon the Attitude Era out of nothing is so fascinating. I just think this like three month period is one of the most critical in company history. Like, this is where they start to get the pieces together. Yes. The insane circumstances that led to this show somehow all worked out in the end. And it's actually, I think, for the best that the show kind of, that the plans kind of fall apart and that the whole, that the shows start feeling chaotic around this time. Because I think Vince realized like, oh, that's what they want to see. They want chaos. They They, want the show to feel out of control. They want it to be unpredictable. Again, borrowing from Bischoff's philosophy, people want to be surprised. And during this three-month period is the first time, I think, in Raw history that the show had really been unpredictable. Because there was no way to predict it. They didn't know what they were going to do. No, because they were just having to come up with new shit each week because somebody else was getting hurt or something else that they had planned was falling through. So they were just having to audible and write things on the fly. Yeah, and what WCW would prove is that booking week to week and not having a long-term plan is not a long-term way to run your company. It won't work. But it can work real well in the short run. That's exactly what happened here. Yeah. So that's a wrap on WrestleMania 13. I mean, the crowning moment for Steve Austin sets up a really fun and entertaining year, 1997. I mean, 97, not their greatest business year, but a you know, a great rebuilding year, you know, set them up for a couple championship seasons to come. Absolutely. Oh, so that's a wrap on WrestleMania 13. We did WrestleMania 14 already last year. So the next one up is WrestleMania 15 in which we find the world wrestling federation in a very different place at the peak of its powers, top of the world. And this show sucks. Sucks. (laughs) Yeah, people talk about the worst WrestleManias. Give me WrestleMania 13 over WrestleMania 15 any day. Any day of the week. And especially since um, we're going to get into it next week. But man, they had everything in front of them to have a great show. And they blew it. We give Vince Russo credit when he deserves it. But we also bury him when he deserves it. And he's going to get it next time. Getting out the fucking shovels, boys and girls. Yeah, so you've got that to look forward to next time. WrestleMania 15, 
the Vince Russo Fever Dream WrestleMania. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.